Greetings from Cyberdelic Space. This is Lorenzo, and I'm your host here in the Psychedelic Salon. And this is my first podcast on the Salon One track. In this, the first week of my 14th year of podcasting from here in the Psychedelic Salon. It's, uh, it's really good to have you here with me today as, uh, well, together we begin yet another year in Cyberdelic Space. Last Saturday, which was the date marking the beginning of our 14th year here in the Salon, I mentioned it on Twitter. And <laughs> I want to thank all of my Twitter followers who either liked or retweeted or both uh, to that post. When I logged into Twitter again a few days later, I thought that my account had been hacked because of all the notifications I received about your likes and retweets. That's the uh, most activity I've ever experienced on Twitter, and, uh, well, I thank you for that little rush. It felt great. Now, to ensure that these podcasts keep coming your way this year, I'm pleased to begin this new podcast year by thanking fellow saloners Joel L., Randall S., and Anatole L., who have recently made donations to the salon to help offset some of the expenses associated with these podcasts. And I want to be sure to thank you as well. I appreciate your being here with me here in the salon, and I promise to do my best to keep some interesting programs coming your way. And speaking of interesting programs, I'm going to pick up today with the next installment of the course that Terrence McKenna taught at CIIS in April of 1995. And there's going to be at least one more podcast from this particular lecture series of his. After that, guess what? One of our fellow saloners from the UK discovered seven cassette tapes of what I believe to be an as yet unheard of, on the internet at least, series of McKenna tapes. Uh, they'd been stored in his parents' garage. Now, I haven't checked them out yet, but my guess is that they're going to be in good enough condition to permit me to digitize and play them here in the salon. So uh, stay tuned in a few weeks for more news about that. Now, if like me, you enjoy it when Terrence takes off on one of his cosmic flights of fancy, I think that you're going to enjoy hearing him today. Because once again, he's going to talk about his intuition that psilocybin mushrooms are of extraterrestrial origin. And just when you think he was finished with that subject, another question lifts him up to yet another of his poetic visions that, well, that I so enjoy hearing. And I should remind you that when you hear him go off on what a great thing the Internet has the potential to become... He was actually talking about the web, which, at that time of his talk, was only three years old. And back then, most of us were only able to access it through a 300-baud dial-up modem. But even then, it's obvious that Terrence had an inkling of where we could be right now. In other words, you and I in cyberspace, listening to a talk that he gave over 20 years ago. Yeah. <coughs> shows that it, it is the deep dialogue between the mind of man and plant. Why does it speak in such galactic terms? When I go to Building Island, I've had visions of UFOs and things that are not of this earth. Very similar to the DMV flat, like you said. Uh-huh. I, I actually had precisely the same hallucinations at the time. 
the way I see heavy doses of psilocybin speaking to me, not really about things here on this planet. Well, I agree with you. That's my experience. And in trying to account for it, uh, you know, you have to look at fungi. Fungi are primary uh, decomposers. That means they can only live on decaying life. That suggests to me that they are late evolving, or at least not early evolving. Uh, mushrooms are very soft-bodied, and so are all fungi. There is no record, no fossil record of a mushroom older than 40 million years. Well, that's a tiny fraction of the time life has been on the Earth. Now, when I asked a paleontologist about this, he said, well, they're soft-bodied and they don't fossilize easily. But hey, we have flatworms from the Gunflint Church of South Africa that are 4.3 billion years old. If they left a trace in the fossil record, you'd think there would be more of a trace of mushrooms. If you decondition your presuppositions and just look at the mushroom, uh, it looks to me, number one, as though it is capable of surviving an extraterrestrial environment. In other words, if you have mushroom spores and you want to store them for long-term longevity, you seek an environment as much like outer space as you can find. You store them in liquid nitrogen at minus 200 degrees, and they will last virtually forever. If you look at the color of Stropharia cubensis spores, that's in the brown-gilled mushroom family, the spores are deep purple, almost black. That's the color you would paint a spacecraft if you wanted to absorb uh, long, long uh, wave radiation. Uh, if you look at the spore, you know, what is it? It's a packet of crystallized DNA. A single mature Stropharia cubensis mushroom, when it's sporulating, will shed up to three million spores a minute for up to two weeks. Three million spores a minute for two weeks. Uh, and these things are uh, microscopic, so small that the perturbations and agitation of air molecules, which are called Brownian motion, can actually percolate these things into the outer atmosphere, where then uh, energetic cosmic events can actually detach them from the terrestrial medium, and they slowly, like planetary dandruff or something, <laughs> drift off into space. Well, uh, I, I, I always, it, it seems so obvious to me, maybe it's because I live in Hawaii, but the most predictable major revolution in biology that you can imagine is, of course, within a few years it will be realized that the Earth is an island, that's all that the biota that is present here, much of it probably drifted in in cosmic debris. When stars go supernova, planets are destroyed. It's a cliche of cosmic consciousness to say, you know, the atoms in your body were once in the hearts of distant stars. Well, if that's true, 
then some of the atoms in your body were once in the, uh, a part of distant planets, and some vanishingly small fraction may have been part of the biota of extraterrestrial ecosystems. The other thing about the mushroom that's very suggestive to me is it appears to be, or, or there is a place, a perspective from which you can look at it, that it appears to be not an organism but an artifact. It is incredibly well designed uh, at a very high level of design criteria. For example, on this planet, uh, one of the most advanced ethical systems we've been able to evolve is Buddhism, which teaches vegetarianism. Uh, if a Buddhist could d design their own genome, they would become a fungus, because a fungus is a primary decomposer. It's the only karmaless place in the entire food chain. There is no karma for the fungi. They don't destroy any life whatsoever. So, so here you have this thing designed to traverse extraterrestrial space, occupying a karmaless niche in the ecosystem, and when complex with a mammalian nervous system, a galactarian archive of historical data becomes accessible. Uh, we have only known about DNA since 1950, less than 50 years, and we're already confidently talking about completely redesigning the human genome and uh, so forth and so on. Well, if we pursue along these lines for 500 years, we will look the way we want to look. And, you know, you trivially, we may all want to be... Keanu Reeves or something, but once the cultural agenda cuts in, uh, if, if, say, Buddhism took over in the presence of an advanced molecular genetics, then we could design ourselves into a karmaless niche in the universe. I, I wish that we could bring, I don't know who it is, but the content of the mushroom experience, which was what launched your question, is so evidently alien and non-human and self-referential to a world we don't know that to me uh, it would require a, a commission and several years of study to decide that this thing is not an extraterrestrial. Our notions of extraterrestrials to this point have been incredibly self-reflexive. Uh, I, the, when, once you have fully in grasp the size of the universe and the amount of time that is available, then the idea that someone would come in a mental in a metal ship with an interest in your gross industrial output and a desire to cure cancer is absolutely preposterous. That's such a culture-bound notion. It's like expecting them to arrive with a load of pizzas ready for delivery. Uh, the trick is going to be to recognize the extraterrestrial. The very notion alien means unfamiliar. So it, it's, it's not going to be like we think it is. The real task will be to recognize it. And... Uh, 
we have discovered after only a thousand years that uh, toxic metal-based technologies are fatal and we have pushed our entire planet into planetary crisis by coming to this realization rather late in the game. If, if long-term survival is the name of the game for intelligent life in the universe, then the way we're doing it is not the way to do it. It's going to have to be non-polluting, biologically based, molecularly based, so forth and so on. And as you run down the list, the mushroom begins to look more and more like the real thing. And then, of course, the content of the, of the experience is so different from other psychedelics and so, so other-oriented that I, I am puzzled that we've been at this now nearly 30 years and we still don't have a consensus. I don't think... I don't know what it is. Is it that when you take the mushroom, you lose all ability to then operate in the world of straight judgments and understanding? Uh, it, it's very puzzling. But I think probably the biota of the Earth is riddled with extraterrestrial genes, if not organisms, and possibly intelligences. But they're not interested in your fetal tissue or uh, putting implants in you, or taking you up and slicing you up on uh, in very large-scale surgical wards. I find all that paranoid and pathological. I can talk about that if you want, but it's not really our subject. Yeah. Yes. Um, there are different ways to look for extraterrestrials. One way is to build a vast radio telescope and search for a signal. Uh, the way I would do it, if I were in charge of things, is I would search the terrestrial ecosystem for anomalous molecules, molecules that have no near relatives or history of evolutionary development in terrestrial organisms. Well. It turns out you don't have to look far. It's psilocybin. Psilocybin is 4-phosphoroxy NN dimethyltryptamine. It's the only 4-phosphorylated indole in nature. The only one. Okay, well, here you have a pentaxel group. It's a five-sided thing. And then you have a benzene molecule off it. And these molecules have numbered positions, one through six. And then you have a phosphorus group. It can attach at any one of those six positions. Attached in the four position, this is unheard of. It only occurs in this one case. Well, that's very odd. I mean, if we believe nature is a continuum of evolutionary adumbration, then have suddenly, out of nowhere, a completely anomalous molecule sticking up suggest it may have come in from somewhere else. Yeah. It's similar. I mean, serotonin is 5-hydroxytryptamine. Uh, serotonin is ubiquitous in life on this planet, from flatworms to man. It's in every organism there is. Yeah, the structure, yes. I mean, here's the thing. Serotonin is 5-hydroxytryptamine. 
Psilocybin is 4-phosphoryloxyn in dimethyltryptamine. What you've got then is uh, uh, 4-NN dimethyltryptamine as opposed to 5-hydroxytryptamine. Yeah, these, these things are uh, a chemical family. Yeah.
dreams from memories. That's all. That's all. If you lose the ability to distinguish dreams from memories, you'll have a very strange history to recite to people. Uh, and I think this is a, a cause by television. It's caused by a number of things. I grew up during the 50s when movies like The Day the Earth Stood Still, Invasion of the Body Snatchers and so forth were coming out. And I distinctly remember a fever that I had when I was about 12 in which I had a horrifyingly real dream of gray-faced, cat-eyed aliens who were doing something to me that I didn't care for and so forth and so on. Well, if I were to be placed into the hands of an obsessive hypnotherapist, I guarantee you in two weeks we'd come out with the realization that it wasn't a dream, that it actually happened. But that, that's... Uh, that's uh, and also the content. If you analyze the content of the abduction scenario, it's pure paranoia. And I can get off on this, but I, I don't really want to. The normal rules of evidence are not being applied. Here's, let me go off on this just a little bit to say, you know, how do you live your life uh, in the light of a universe that is strange and vast? Well, you can just believe anything anybody tells you, in which case, you know, fetal removal by extraterrestrials vies with your attention as you seek Elvis in the aisles of the local supermarket as you worry about the fall of Atlantis and so forth and so on. But over time, there has been something evolved called the rules of evidence, colloquially known as how to tell Shifsum Shinola. And uh, the first thing is, there should be an, eco an economy of explanation. This is called Occam's razor. In other words, hypotheses should be no more complex than is necessary to explain whatever it is you're trying to explain. So if inability to tell dreams from memories explains abduction, why do we have to reach for the idea that... Uh, uh, geneticists from Zenebel Ganubi are moving secretly among us with a surgical agenda and also carry out unscheduled proctological examinations in the middle of the night. Uh, I, I mean, really now. Uh, <laughs> and what I want to say about that is I got where I am, whether it is enviable or not, but I got where I am by being tough, not by being gullible. And so I've rejected vast amounts of things, uh, not only dubious things, but I've probably tossed a few babies out with the bathwater as well. But uh, ask tough questions. Make it make sense. Uh, and be, as they say in Hawaii, be akamai, be smart. Uh, uh, understand the subtleties and the potential degradation of language. And then trust only yourself. Trust only yourself. Uh, photographs are useless. Anecdotes are useless. What happened to your best friend last weekend when you weren't there is useless. You can entertain 
all that information. But what you have to, given the slipperiness of language, given uh, the limitations of the human organism, you have to stay with primary experience and extrapolate out from there. And uh, if you have had fetal tissue removed, then you have to deal with it. But the uh, testimony of 700 people you don't know doesn't have to bother you at all. Yeah. Uh, what is your dialogue with the mushroom? How, how do you see the sort of big picture of the agenda? If this is an extraterrestrial force that catalyzed consciousness on the planet, you mean what's happening? I think that nature, well, I mentioned this yesterday, that, that biology, let's leave nature out of this for a minute, biology is some kind of chemical strategy for the conquest of dimensionality. I said this yesterday, but I'm not sure I was understood. And what I mean by that is the entire history of biology from the first uh, naked DNA to this moment is a history of progressively taking more and more control of more and more dimensions. First primitive life moved. It had no eyes. It simply felt its way. That means it was like uh, one, uh, uh, one uh, two-dimensional life. It just feels its way down a linear creode of sensation, defecating, eating, undergoing mitosis, and so forth and so on. But it's a, it's a two-dimensional thing. Well, then life acquired light-sensitive chemistry, which it sequestered on the surface of itself, driven by serotonin, interestingly enough. And this light-sensitive chemistry gave the idea of a gradient the organism had, however dimly, the notion here and there. And to have the notion of going from here to there, you have to add in the notion now and then. And what these notions being added in are dimensional vectors into the reality space. Well, then the entire history of life from, let's say, the Crossopterygian fishes to Homo habiles is simply the history of developing more efficient organs of motion in the three-dimensional world. Better eyes, better arms, better legs, uh, mobility, motility, so forth and so on. Then, with the appearance of true human beings and language, an entirely new dimension let's call it the fourth dimension of time, begins to be invaded in a very subtle way. It's that monkeys can't tell stories to each other about past experiences or hoped for uh, denouements. Human beings can. That act of linguistic recollection is a, a small conquest of dimensionality. Well, once you invent writing, then all of the past can, in a sense, be kept in the present. 
The present is not a narrow slice of experience fading off into the past and the future. It becomes instead like a train moving into the future. The future is unknowable, but the past can be re recollected and uh, uh, analyzed. And if the analysis is sophisticated enough, one can begin to triangulate outward toward the future. Uh, the history of science is uh, the history of prediction. Well, what is prediction? It's uh, taking control of a previously uncontrolled dimension, the future. And uh, I think that the rise of electronic technology, the rise of extremely complex language-using societies, means that we're about to uh, go wholly in to the fourth dimension, the temporal dimension. And we see ourselves as distinct from our technologies, you see. We, like when you are in a car, you think, I am a human being driving a human invention. But there is a point of view from which, no, you are just a human being who has put on another level of humanness, which happens to have wheels under it, and is rolling along. In other words, genetics, that changes the stuff of our bodies. Epigenetics, which we call ideology and technology, changes the environment in which our bodies operate. And I think we're getting set basically to decamp into the imagination. That the imagination is as real a place as across the river is if you've just acquired eyes. It's something you're seeing for the first time and then generating an appetite to go into. And this has been kicking around for 15 or 20,000 years. A, a, a shaman is a seer, is a prophet, is a higher dimensional mathematician. And they may not you know, use tensor equations to express what they're doing, but mathematics before symbols is experience. And so uh, I, I, I really believe history is ending very soon. I cannot conceive of a hundred years in the future at the present accelerated rate of development. Uh, we have unleashed such novelty that I think we're in the terminal phase of decamping from three-dimensional space. We are leaving the womb of Newtonian being for something else, the imagination. And the birth is tumultuous. An entire planet is at risk. And eventually, you know, toxemia seems to be setting in. We've used up all the nutritional resources in the womb. The walls are closing in. We're suffocating. Our political systems don't work. Our social systems are breaking down. Uh, if you're a realist, a pessimist, then you just say, well, this is it, folks. This is the smash-up. The party lasted 20,000 years, and here comes the bill. But you might think that if you were a fetus trapped in a collapsing womb at transition, you could not conceive of the stockbroker, fashion designer, or uh, whatever, that you are going to be in another dimension, in another reality that you're being born into. And I think we... Our aspiration is the conquest of death. 
Our religions promise it, and if our gods can't deliver, we'll elbow them aside and do it ourselves. Thank you. Uh, and you know, these things aren't decisions made by a single person or even a group of people. They come from the bone. It's it's who we are. We aspire to be magic, and we probably, uh, given our track record, will achieve it. As I said yesterday, James Joyce said, "Man will be dirigible." humorous thing to say, but yes. Um, I don't really understand what you mean by that, like even for the birth of the imagination, you mean like a Star Trek episode where they have no body, and the guy that like, makes himself a big cat, and well, uh, one of the nice things about my position is I don't have to entirely understand myself because I'm self-defined as a primitive. Uh, I, it, when we talk about decamping from Newtonian space and you're asking me what would it look like, uh, I'm as puzzled as you are. I don't know. Is it nanotech? Are we going to become anti and all live in one acre of the rainforest? Are we going to uh, find a way to completely transpose ourselves into the net and just shed our bodies the way we once shed the placenta that connected us? Uh, I, I once said the body is the placenta of the soul. But is that a religious statement or a technological goal? What do we mean the body is the placenta of the soul? And then people get really agitated because a lot of people, and I include myself among them, rather like the body. And you can imagine a debate in the Archeozoic Ocean when people, say, when people of a very scaly and lantern-jawed type, uh, said, listen, we're leaving for the land. You say, you cannot live on the land. There's no water on the land. The land is our whole being. We're defined by the water, the joy of swimming, the great, you know, on and on and on. Well, some organisms turned their back on that, and so then we had the conquest of the land. It, it, it's a big thing. It's a big thing because what we're being asked is what is humanness? What can you discard and still be human? Can, can we discard our bodies and still be human? Can we discard our ethics and still be human? I'd rather keep my ethics and get rid of the body. Uh, but, you know, we are sexual creatures. What is life what is sex without a body, for crying out loud? Uh, how does that work and look? Uh, but it is really not ours to decide. We have grabbed hold of a tiger several billion years ago. Nature is a bootstrapping process, and it seems fairly unsentimental. You know, there's no tears shed for, for the great sauropods that once stalked the planet. They, they were wiped out in an asteroid impact. That allowed the, the arise of the angiosperms and the mammals. We are the children and the inheritors of a planetary catastrophe. If this planet hadn't been wrecked 65 million years ago, we'd still be here. We wouldn't be here. Well, then what is our position 
on planetary catastrophe. We're in the process of making one. Is it so that 65 million years in the future an organism filled with love and justice and intelligence will look back at our skeletons in the shale and say, well, they had a good thing going, but if it hadn't been for their extinction, we wouldn't be here. The very large scale is very large indeed. One of the things that's so interesting about the visionary plants is that they give you a large, large picture. I think the vegetable mind views death in a different way. Uh, it is, vegetables are eternal in a sense. Through vegetative propagation, they can live virtually forever. Life lies very close to the surface in us, and if it's crushed out, we're, we're very alarmed. We, our sense of uniqueness is so highly evolved that our own death becomes for us the most universal tragedy we can conceive of. That's a serious ego dislocation, I, I maintain. Yeah. Well, nature has two impulses. Uh, in the particular case, the impulse is always toward equilibrium. Uh, animal species seek to establish niches for themselves in ecosystems that can then be maintained indefinitely, just the way you seek a job where you'll then get money and without working too hard or eating too much excrement, you'll be able to maintain yourself uh, indefinitely. If you look at all of nature right now, the only, uh, the, the human species is where the evolutionary cutting edge has become concentrated. And then if you look at the human species, the place where the changing novelty has been concentrated is in uh, high-tech industrial democratic civilization. I don't call it Western anymore because its leading exponent is Japan. But high-tech industrial democracies are the only social systems that are still evolving and changing. So uh, I think they also serve who only stand and wait. Uh, uh, these traditional societies perform the role very much of, a, of an animal species at equilibrium in an ecosystem. They preserve values related to stability and homeostasis. Meanwhile, uh, in these places where these creative uh, creodes have begun to cascade, novelty is what's being explored. But the novelty feeds back and changes the context in which these equilibrium-seeking systems operate. Uh, the universe, I believe, is an engine for the production and conservation of novelty. The universe will, 
will sacrifice everything achieved to achieve something new. You can see that in looking at this asteroid impact 65 million years ago. I mean, this, this was a climax planetary ecosystem of tropical forests from pole to pole filled with complex animals and ecosystems and many phyla represented, but it was all thrown away to make way for the mammals and the angiosperms. I mean, speaking teleologically. So I, I think novelty is what nature values above all else. And that, interestingly, leads on to the notion of an ethic for us, because that confers immediate central importance on the human enterprise. The orthodox view is that we're a chance anomaly, an eccentricity in the cosmic game. But if the conservation of novelty is what the universe is about, then we are its pride and joy, its crown jewel, the firstborn son and heir apparent. Uh, and the other thing is this, this ingression or this movement into novelty has been going on since the beginning of the universe, but always ever faster, ever faster. So in the, in the early universe, once things settled down after the Big Bang, it was dull for a long, long time. I mean, there wasn't much happening. There weren't even stars. There was just hydrogen aggregating. And then eventually there were aggregates of hydrogen so large that the pressures at the centers of those aggregates of hydrogen caused a new property to emerge, fusion. And fusion cooks out uh, heavy elements like iron and sulfur and carbon. And when carbon cooks out, new emergence properties become possible. Molecular chemistry rather than simple atomic systems comes into play. Well, then elaborate that for a few billion years and you get long chain polymers. They're like super molecules and they have the quality or the ability to template and reproduce themselves. Well, so suddenly you get a whole new uh, emergent uh, domain in nature, the, the domain of the self-copying, self-replicating molecules. And then they begin to embed themselves in membranes and so forth. And then you get uh, nucleated cells and then colonies of nucleated cells. And from there to advanced mammals, it's just a matter of time. And, and then uh, the, the organs of locomotion seem to have been perfected. Uh, you know, the fastest animal in the world can run 70 miles an hour, something like that. And so then the development seems to concentrate in the, in the nervous system. The, the coordination no longer of, of space, but of information. Information becomes the new coinage. Advanced binocular vision systems evolve. Pack signaling systems evolve in social animals. And then, at some point, the level of complexity is sufficient to cross a boundary into true language, true representation of the past in the present through symbolic activity. Uh, in each case, 
these stages are happening faster and faster and faster. Language may, is probably less than 100,000 years old. It may be half that age. Well, good grief. That's less than five, that's less than 3,000 generations in the past. Language. That's yesterday. And, and yet, since the inception of language, look at what has happened. You know, urbanism, global conquest of the environment, uh, mathematical conquest of nature. Uh, we can call down the fires that burn in the hearts of stars to the deserts of this planet, or if necessary, necessary, down upon the heads of our enemies. That's an extraordinary feat for protoplasm to be able to uh, undertake. Extraordinary. Uh, and, 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 and so I, I think this accelerating novelty indicates that we are on the brink of just going down the novelty well and becoming as unrecognizable to ourselves as we would be to Tyrannosaurus Rex if it were introduced to us as the heirs to its struggle and dreams. Yeah. Uh, one of the most interesting things to me in uh, in this landscape near the end of you know, the correction by this is incorrectly. Uh, in the moment, I always talk about what does my book like. I think there was one line that said, September 21st, 2012, and then the 22nd may look good across the 21st. Okay, there may be no change on the surface. It may look the same. And I'm curious how that fits in. Well, one way it could happen is that as we get closer and closer to it, our ability to accept these strange things becomes broader and broader. So when the moment finally comes, yes, you are a self-dribbling jeweled basketball, but hey, it ain't no big deal, and you saw it coming years ago, so what? Uh, <coughs> uh, I, I don't know. I, I vacillate on all of this because... As a rationalist, I'm very puzzled by my intellectual burden of a completely irrational revelation. I would never have wished this upon myself. I'm much more comfortable as a, as a fairly hard-nosed, skeptical thinker. Yet, I've spent so much time with this idea that I guess I have become infected with it. It now seems to me as reasonable as anything else. There is, unremarked by science, a universal tendency toward complexity through time. It's a law as, as real as the law of the speed of light or the segregation of genes. But science has never said that because science is, as practiced out of the 19th century, is militantly anti-teleological. In other words, it denies any end goal, any goal, any purpose, any predefined end state. It, it, science just thinks the universe is a random walk. But I, I can't, I, I think it's becoming harder and harder to maintain that idea in the face of the evidence. There are too many choices. If you have a protein of several thousand atoms, 
It has 10 high 16 folding configurations it can choose from. If it, if it worked through those things by trial and error, it would take the life of the universe for that molecule to figure out its minimum energy configuration and assume it. So there is a kind of logic or there are constraints that we aren't aware of that push processes toward completion. And I think, you know, the new sciences of, of chaos theory, dynamics, complexity, fractals, strange attractors are going to deliver this into our uh, understanding. It's a very exciting time. I mean, we're taking the first intellectual steps toward the real re-understanding of nature since at least the invention of the calculus and probably the invention of Greek mathematics. Yeah. Like a chain reaction. Well, you put your finger on it. The key word is connectedness. Uh, I, I'm very interested in the philosophical, if you want to put it that way, implications of the World Wide Web and the Internet. I mean, the Internet is a fascinating thing. You can't see it. Therefore, if you're not into it, the world appears to have remained the same. Nothing has changed. Uh, and yet, actually, the largest human artifact ever created has sprung into being in the last five years. It's as big as this planet. And uh, nobody controls it. It has no central control. No one can decide that it shall be this or shall be that. There are certain areas under limited control. Well, but what does the Internet do? Well, it connects us together. It, it uh, broadens and deepens and makes more immediate the cultural database that we're all swimming in. And uh, I, I think that probably it is a model for, not a model, but it is an anticipation of this transcendental object at the end of time. I mean, I have said in these lectures, you know, my idea of the future perfect state is a world of 500 million human beings of all races, genders, sexual persuasion, so forth and so on. 500 million well-fed, healthy people living mostly in warm climates, largely naked, very little physical, cultural manifestation. But if you could project yourself into one of these people's minds or bodies, you would see that when they close their eyes, there are menus hanging in space. Those menus are there because at age three there was a surgical implant behind the eyelids of something like a very small contact lens. And that is the philosopher's stone. That is the culmination of 10,000 years of technical evolution and engineering dreams. 
And what it boils down to is a little black disc that's surgically implanted behind your eyelid, and that's your interface to the culture. And you can move into the net, which is, of course, virtually implemented. It's not text. It's not even hypertext. It's a three-dimensional, non-material world ruled by the laws, not of physics, but the imagination. And I call this turning the body inside out. This is what the cultural enterprise is for. We want, we want to live in the imagination with the body as a freely commandable object in the imagination. In other words, replace the laws of physics with the laws of, of uh, dream or imagination. This is culturally within our reach right now. I mean, if it were as, as important as piling up nuclear stockpiles or screwing people over in a hundred different ways, we'd have it in five years, not 17. As it is, we'll probably have to wait uh, 17 years. But that, that, the fact that we can make a model like that, that's a bridge from where we're sitting to a spiritually transcendental realm that's within reach is, I think, very positive. Now all we have to do is fill in the blanks, keep taking psychedelics so that our engineering standards stay high, so that we stay focused on the goals that we're trying to maximize, and then try to promote the idea that anxiety is inappropriate. Anxiety poisons the will to action. And I really think that this is going to be the, the task of the high-tech um, alternative culture is to provide an optimistic vision. Because you see, the people who run the world are becoming more and more panic-stricken. Because a world is ending. Their world is ending. The world of the shell game and the international corporation and the propagandized passive electorate and all these things that have been... That game is ending. And there, there is no substitute vision being discussed at the upper echelons of the control mechanism of this society. It's, it's coming from the grassroots. The people at the top are too paralyzed with the poisons they've imbibed by feeding at the trough of the old order. They can't think their way out of their dilemma. In fact, they have to pay guys with ponytails just to turn on the machines in the morning. They're so distant from the things they rule, you see. Yeah. Um, I'm wondering that, like, in my experience and other people talking to me about taking hallucinogens, you talk about dissolving the boundaries. Another way to look at it is um, you talk about anxiety. It's anxiety or fear eventually goes away of the other. Which if we have a boundary, there is another. And um, in terms of like men and women, if women are more other for men than vice versa, that on a hallucinogen, a man can um, get to a place where he observes and goes beyond the boundaries to know that it's not the other. And if a woman is in that place, what I, from my own personal experience and from other people talking to me, is though women kind of find their voice in the way of the world to say, well, okay, not to have 
always experience with the other. And um, and as some hope of, of things accelerating, my mother was born in 1921 and was very conservative, has come to the point where she's 73 years old or whatever and has a 77 year old boyfriend and at dinner and very proud and laughing says, well, I'm living in you ever think your mother is here? And, and I, I, I kind of like to hear what you would say about in terms of ugliness and how psychedelics can what the dissolving of the boundaries does and how we carry that to other people. Yeah. Well, first of all, uh, it's important in all these discussions to remember there is nothing on earth as much like a woman as a man. Uh, the, the neck species over, whatever it is, the difference is enormous. The other thing to remember is if, if you believe in evolutionary theory, then this has always amazed me. Uh, women are the creation of choices made by men. Men are the creation of choices made by women. The aesthetic difference is striking. I mean, apparently men prefer smooth, gentle, uh, nurturing, curvaceous forms, and apparently women, their aesthetic is fulfilled by a rougher cut. Uh, we are reflections of the desires of the opposite gender because we've been subject to selection in the sexual process that way. Uh, as far as everybody is struggling to keep up with the evolution of the culture, I experienced the same thing. I mean, my father is a very conservative character, and uh, uh, he's now 80, and he seems to go out of his way to be outrageous. And uh, I, I, it, it's maybe the one good thing television is doing is that straight people, and by that I don't mean non-gay, I mean in, in the sense of non-psychedelic, straight people can't escape from the weirdness of the culture. You know, no matter who you are, you have to look at this stuff. It's, it's in your face and eventually you bend. Uh, so approaching the other is a process of redefining yourself to be more acceptable to it. You know, there's a coming to meet. It becomes more familiar as you become more familiar with it. Uh, but the truly other, what Rudolf Otto called the, the totally other, is other in principle. It's like the archetype of the other, and it can't be assimilated. But wherever the other is particularized in a person, a work of art, a, a place, uh, it can be approached through a process of templating yourself to it. You know, We become what we behold no matter how bizarre what we behold may be. You're listening to the Psychedelic Salon, where people are changing their lives one thought at a time. We become what we behold. So says Terence McKenna, and so have said many philosophers who have come before him. I can remember the first time that I heard that thought expressed, and it was expressed as, we become what we think about. Uh, that was back in a philosophy class at college, and the guy sitting next to me whispered, 
my God, I'm going to become a woman. <laughs> Need I mention that the college I was attending was an all-boys school at the time. So, uh, did you enjoy some of Terence's flights of fancy? I always liked listening to his rap about the body being the placenta of the soul. Somehow, uh, well, <laughs> somehow that thought just seems more warm and fuzzy the older I get. Now, uh, before I go, there is one more thing that, if you're like me, you'll enjoy thinking about. In the talk that we just listened to, we heard Terence talking about the supposition that there may be atoms in our bodies that had their origin in other star systems and have percolated to island Earth. And we've all heard that many times before from a wide range of sources. I think that we can safely say that that is a psychedelic thought. Another such thought that I just learned of is from the last paper that Stephen Hawking published just before he died. And while that paper is way out of my league mathematically, the headline is that it provides a way to discover if there actually are other universes that are parallel to the one we now seem to be experiencing. However, there is yet another possibility that you may want to explore, and that comes from one of our fellow Saloners, Bernardo Castro, who we heard from several times here in the Salon. Well, uh, last month, Scientific American Magazine published a paper of Bernardo's that's titled Thinking Outside the Quantum Box, How the Mind Can Make Sense of Quantum Physics in More Ways Than One. Now, since I don't want to be a spoiler here, I'll leave it to you to read this interesting essay for yourself, and I'll link to it in today's program notes at psychedelicsalon.com. But if you enjoy thinking about what we call reality, then this essay is for you. And for now, this is Lorenzo signing off from Cyberdelic Space. Be well, my friends. <laughs>